The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The 2021 Top 100 Investment Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative. Includes assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory record, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines, ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien. And you're listening to Everyday Wealth. This week, we're doing something a little different. We're going to be taking a journey through the different phases of having an adult child. We'll start off with a question from a listener about 529 plans. Then we'll move into what you do when your adult kids boomerang back into your life, back home after college. And then finally, we'll explore downsizing your home for when the kids finally leave. Oh boy, oh boy. There's a lot there. I think this is a journey, Soledad, that so many empty nesters make. And of course, every week we're guided by experts from Edelman Financial Engines. These are the folks who work with clients every day to help move their financial lives forward. Brian Leslie, a wealth planner from Omaha, Nebraska, joins us for the first part of our show. We're going to start this segment with a question from our listener, Arthur C. He's in Morristown, New Jersey, and his question is about 529 plans. And oh, by the way, if you have a question that you'd like to have us answer on the show, just go to planefe.com, visit the Everyday Wealth page because we'd love to hear from you. Anyway, here's Arthur's question. What do you do with an overfunded 529 plan? My first wife and I divorced when our son was three. I was obliged to pay 60% of his college education, so I opened a 529 to do that. The account has more than $120,000 in it. My ex and son moved to California, so he qualifies as in-state reducing the expenses. But he's 26 now, and all his college efforts have been less than successful. What can I do with this money? I do have a son with my current wife, but because he was born in 2009 and we front-loaded the gift to his 529, that account has more than $200,000 in it. So transferring the beneficiary isn't necessary. I hate to pay the penalties and taxes on money that I contributed and paid taxes on pre-contribution. So here's his question in a nutshell. What's the best strategy to deal with an overfunded 529 plan? So let's just set some context here before we give Arthur the answer. Um, a 529, for those people who are not familiar, it's a tax-advantaged college savings plan. There are a couple different types of um, 529 plans. There are prepaid tuition plans, and those are popular in, in some states. And essentially, you buy tuition credits at today's rates, and then you just use them down the road. But there are also college savings plans. That's what Arthur is talking about. And these are, they're like Roth IRAs, but for college. You put in money that you've already paid taxes on in most cases, although some states will give you a state tax credit for making a contribution. The money is invested typically by the age of your kid. It grows tax-free. And when you pull the money out 
at the time of wanting to pay for education down the road, uh, you don't pay any taxes on it as long as you use it for qualified educational expenses. The rub is, as Arthur has found, if you don't use it for qualified educational expenses, you pay a 10% penalty on the growth of that money. And that's really important. You're not paying a penalty on every dollar that you pull out. You're paying a penalty on the money that you've made in profit. So if you put in 10,000 and it's grown to 20,000, you're going to pay that penalty on the 10,000. You know, quite frankly, I think this is a very nice problem to have. You know, sorry, Arthur, I know paying taxes are are no fun for for anybody. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. If he's going to withdraw the money for non-education expenses, there's going to be the 10% penalty, but also ordinary income taxes, right? That Mm -hmm. you're going to have to pay on the earnings. And so like, yeah, it stinks, um, but it's also a pretty good problem to have. So let's start with basic advantages of 529 plans. So there are tax advantages, right? You put the money into the account, that money is going to grow tax deferred for many, many years. Withdrawals are also free of federal income tax when you use them for qualified education withdrawals. And depending on the state in which you live, they may be free of state income tax too. And as the account owner, and this is really important and something that people I think don't pay enough attention to, you get to decide who the account is for. You maintain control of the asset, which is why Arthur has the ability to switch beneficiaries. He can take the money that he saved for one son, and he can actually use it to pay for education for his other child. Gene, in regards to your point about the tax advantages, I mean, this is no different than retirement accounts, right? 401ks, -hmm. Roth IRAs, you know, Congress has developed these accounts to encourage people to save for retirement, or in this case, save for education. Um, and, and you get tax benefits for doing so. And I think it might be helpful just putting some like dollar terms or, or some, some amounts around what these tax savings can be to help like just wrap our head around it. For example, if you've got a newborn, you've got, let's say, 18 years to save. You put away $300 a month for 18 years let's say that money earns 10%, you will have contributed over the 18 years, almost $65,000. The account will be worth almost $180,000. In other words, almost $115,000 of that is gain or earnings on the money. And the point being is if it's in the 529, that earnings amount, that 115,000 gets to come out tax-free Whereas if it wasn't in a 529 and you had just invested in a brokerage account, well, now you have to sell those investments and you have to report all of that earnings as such and you have to pay taxes on it. So, Brian, you, you made a couple of assumptions in that example. I just want to get to them. I mean, what are you figuring that that money is going to earn year in and year out? Well, I, I mean, I just use 10% for simplicity, but, you know, you could use six, you could use eight. Of course, it all depends on how you have it invested. And 10% might be a little bit aggressive, but, you know, you drop it down to an 8% growth rate. Uh, the earnings would be about $80,000 as opposed to 115. So the point being is it's still rather significant sums of money. There's a big advantage 
to putting money in a 529 as compared to a regular brokerage firm for your kids. And and that is when it comes to the financial aid formulas, money in a 529 is just looked at a lot more favorably. It's not going to prevent you from qualifying for as much aid as if the money was actually in the name of the child. It doesn't hurt you. As, yes. As having money in a brokerage account would hurt you as you're applying for financial aid or, or hurt your child if it's in a 529. It doesn't sort of work against you to have saved that money um, because, you know, I run a small foundation uh, that sends girls to college. And we found that when we would give someone a scholarship, literally immediately they would raise their tuition. Yeah. Because exactly. they said, well, actually, you know, our calculations of what they what they could have were off then. That doesn't happen in a 529, which is a tremendous advantage. Let's talk about disadvantages because 529s do have disadvantages. They do. And and Arthur hit on the, the big one straight off the bat that if you make withdrawals and you don't use them for qualifying educational expenses, you're going to pay income taxes, federal and state in many cases, and you're going to pay a 10% penalty, but there are some other disadvantages too. Um, the investment options that you have available to you may be limited. Not every plan is the same. You want to be very careful that you are comparing plans. There's a website called savingforcollege.com that I like a lot because it does ratings of the different 529 plans. And even if you're in a single state, you may have choices between several different 529s. You want to make sure that you're you're picking not just the one that's going to give you the best tax advantages, but the one that is going to give you the best performance. And, and there's some others, right, Brian? Yeah. I, I mean, you, you hit on a couple of them. The fact that you do have to use it for education. I mean, the downfall is like, well, what if I want to help one of my kids uh, start a business? I mean, I think that's a valiant effort. So I don't necessarily think that my kids need to go to college. Certainly hope that they do. But th- that's that's the obvious one that you pointed out. As you think, though, about like w- what are some alternatives? What else could we potentially do with this money? One thing is just just keep it in there. He mentioned his, his son's 26 and up to this point hasn't gone very well. But listen, sometimes it just takes a little bit more time for some of us to get to that maturity level. And, and that's OK. Maybe he decides in a couple of years he's ready to go, to go back to school. I got my degree in 2000. I was 33 years old. I appreciated that my that I had money saved for it, and eventually NBC News actually paid for my college education. So I think there's tremendous hope for your son to, you know, maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but maybe one day use that fund to go to college when the time is right for him to advance his degree. And he figures out what exactly he wants to do if he needs college. They don't necessarily need to go to college to be wildly successful. And sometimes they do want to go to college and having that money will be really useful. It might just not happen at 26. It might happen at 36 and he can still have access to those funds. He could also assign those funds to somebody else, right? He could. He could assign those funds to um, to the son that he has with his current wife. And, you know, believe it or not, although the account that he already has has $200,000 in it, and I wouldn't add any more to that account because you've got this other money, um, college tuition may be more than that, depending on where your son- I was going to say, if that son... little kid's going to Harvard, forget it. Yeah. You're not even close to paying what it's going to cost to send him. Literally, I think it will cost him- 
$400,000. Let's say that little junior goes off to to Harvard University. That's going to be something like $400,000 all expenses in. Exactly. And also, Arthur, if you want to go back and get a degree yourself, you want to you want to do some continuing education. Your wife wants to do some continuing education. So what many people don't know is that you can transfer the beneficiary. So maybe that 529 that was for your kid ends up going to your grandchildren instead. My my parents, it was amazing. They funded in part my kids' education, and they passed away a couple of years ago. But every single time I get a big, giant tuition bill for my daughters who are in college, it just takes me back to, like, thinking about my mom and dad who were so kind to, like, to help, you know, contribute to their grandchildren's education. It's very emotional, actually, for me uh, when it happens. So I I think it's a really lovely thing to do if if you can do it. So right now— Grandparent-owned 529 plans are not counted as an asset of the child's, and, and therefore it's not included in that calculation for what's called the expected family contribution. In other words, what is the family expected to contribute to the child's education from, from a financial standpoint? Now, the one thing that has been included up to this point is when a grandparent would take a withdrawal from that 529 plan and use it to pay education expenses for a grandchild – that payment was considered income and counted as income towards the the child's expected family contribution. So, of course, if a child has income, part of that income is expected to go towards their college. And so that may reduce some of the financial aid the child may get the following years. But, you know, what we would typically do is just tell the grandparent to use their 529 money in the grandchild's junior, senior year. That way, when it's used, sure, they might lose some financial aid the following year. If they're graduating, what does it matter? I should say, though, that that law is also changing. I believe it's somewhere around 2024, 2025, somewhere in that ballpark, where when grandparents use their 529 to pay for the grandchild's education, whereas before it was considered income to the child, it's going to be changing to where it's no longer counted. So Not only is the asset not counted in the calculation, but no longer is the income counted when the grandparents do use the asset to pay for the expenses of the grandchild. Are you limited to who you can actually like pass your 529 fund along to? Well, you can't give it to a charity. But if you're looking within your own family, you can pass it on. And I think it's important to note you can use it yourself, right? You decide down the road, it's time to get that master's degree that you've been thinking about. It's time to get your PhD. You want to become something else for your third act. Have at it. You've got the money. I've had a number of clients where they've just decided to go back to school. I I remember one client in particular went to uh, take some classes at the local community college in small engine repair so he could fix his lawnmower. And as you think about some of the expenses that you can now use that 529 plan for, like, what if he needs a new computer? Well, if you're enrolled as a student, you can buy a new computer, maybe a laptop, maybe you need a printer. Some of those other expenses, too, for your for yourself, maybe not for your son, he could he could use that money for, and it would be considered a qualified education expense. Oh, I didn't realize that. A lot of people don't realize, too, that there are scenarios. There are times, and I dealt with a question like this on on my Her Money podcast just this week, there are times where you can actually get the money out without paying the 10% penalty. 
If you had a child who got a scholarship, you can withdraw the amount of the scholarship without paying a penalty. Um, if there's a death or a disability of the beneficiary, you can get the money out. If the beneficiary decides to go into the military, and Soledad, you're talking about your parents, but it made me think about my father who didn't start college himself until he was 26 because he he wasn't mature enough. He wasn't ready. My grandmother would like to say that she spent more time in his high school than my father did. <laughs> and, um, and when he finally did go after spending some time in the army, he did great. You know, he got, he got all A's for the first time in his life. He went on to get a master's, went on to get a PhD. Some of us just need maturing, you know, I'm just going (laughs) to, I did. I thought getting my college degree at 33 was pretty amazing. And my husband used to brag that he was dating a co-ed. So it all worked out all around. All the way around. One of you mentioned earlier as well, the idea of using it for, for grandkids. Um, Let's not forget the, the fact that you can use these for, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade now as well. Now, we should call out there are some states um, that don't actually allow that. For example, Nebraska, the state that I live in, uh, you're not allowed uh, to use it for K through 12. So although you may take the money out and the earnings, if you're using it for K through 12, is free from federal income tax, you may still have state income tax uh that is owed on the earnings of those money if you use it for K through 12. So that is kind of one nuance that you got to think about. And and same thing if, you know, Nebraska allows a deduction up to a certain amount. And if, once again, if you use it for K through 12, you may have to repay some of that deduction amount that, that you got. So those are some key things to keep in mind. So getting back to our original note from Arthur C., uh, he's got this overfunded 529 plan. What are his options? As you think about the options that Arthur has, I think one of them is, of course, you just take it out and you pay the earnings or pay the taxes on the earnings and and the 10% penalty if you're going to use it for non-qualified education expenses. The other thing is just hold on to it. Give your son some time. Maybe he figures it out and decides that he does want to go to school. There's there's no expiration date on these funds. Save it for a grandkid. Maybe uh, he has children of his own someday and the money can then be used for his children. But those are some, a couple of the options, and you can get the money out if the child does get a, a scholarship up to that scholarship amount without the uh, earnings penalty. Now, you, you still have to pay or report the earnings as income, but you avoid the 10% penalty. And none of that is bad. Like, he gets a scholarship, amazing. He's got right. a, a fully funded 529, amazing. He decides to get his college degree at 33, like I did, amazing, all good. I'm going to say um, for Arthur, it's all good. Don't stress Great about it. Great problem to have. You're, right. Great it's a good problem to have. And, you know, some of us take just a little teeny bit longer to figure it out. Those who've built their own financial success know that moving forward requires not just the right tools, but an in-depth knowledge of how to use them. That's why Edelman Financial Engines gives you a dedicated wealth planner supported by a team of experts. By combining human insight and advanced technology, We provide a truly tailored experience to your needs and goals. Call 888-912-0373 or visit efewealthplanners.com to get your complimentary financial plan. I'm Soledad O'Brien, along with Gene Chatsky and Brian Leslie, an Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner, in thinking about what we always call your personal economies, one area many of us have 
seen change, <laughs> uh, is the increase in these last couple of years of the pandemic in boomerang kids, kids coming back home. I have some boomerang children, partly because in some cases they had nowhere to be. If your school goes remote, you need good Wi-Fi and you need some food options and you don't have college anymore, they come back in. Adult children as well who move back into their parents' homes, uh, sometimes even with their own kids because of financial hardship or just gets impossible to sustain, especially in certain industries that were very hard hit during the pandemic. And just to put this into context, we're not talking about a slow dribble of kids moving back home. I mean, during the pandemic, more than half of kids between the ages of 18 and 29 moved back in with at least one of their parents. And yes, granted, many of these are students, but as you were just saying, a good number are not. And yeah, sometimes they move their entire families back in with their parents. Brian, if you are thinking you're an empty nester and all of a sudden you're not. Surprise! It changes. <laughs> it really, it changes your monthly budget, but it also may change your calculations for your future. You know, we, we framed this within like the context of the pandemic, but I think even before the pandemic, right? It's true. I, I think mm-hmm. as parents, we just kind of have to set those rules of like, okay, you're 18, you're an adult now. If you're in school, sure, maybe, you know, we've got no problem with you living at home and there's no expectation of financial reimbursement. But, you know, coming back to like, what is it, 50 percent of college freshmen drop out? And so imagine you've got an 18-year-old that just dropped out of college and they're just sitting at home in the basement eating Doritos. we got to have a discussion of like, okay, now you've got to start contributing to the household if this is going to be the situation. I did a Google search about when I started writing about this, when I started covering it, and it was actually the Great Recession. The Great Recession, when kids came out of school and were unable to find jobs, at that point, a lot of them started moving home. Bankrate did a survey, and they said 50% of parents with boomerang kids say they've sacrificed retirement savings to help their kids out. So they're pushing off their own retirement or they're looking at a retirement that is maybe not what they anticipated. How do we get ahead of this? You got to set ground rules. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of parents that are, quite frankly, helping their kids at the cost of their own situation. It's like that saying about airplanes, right? Put your mask on first before you put your kids on. Like you got to make sure your financial house is squared away. And I, I think part of that is having a conversation with the kids, laying the ground rules like, okay, sure, we'll, we'll help you out. But here's the rules. Here's how long this is going to last. Here's what you're expected to do while you're in this household. And, you know, for some parents, it's actually opening up and saying like, hey, here's what we've got for resources. And I, I think the thing is when kids see what the parents have for resources, they start to recognize, okay – I know I can't be asking mom and dad to be helping me out too much financially because they got to get their own stuff squared away. The question is, when does helping become enabling, right? When does help from your parents allowing your kids to be back home drag on a little too long and start to look like, oh my gosh, they are here and they are never leaving? At what point do we have to give our kids a little bit of an additional push? Like, you know, I think the challenge with that is that it's a great conversation, but if someone is making no money, if they can't find a job, if they actually have been in school in an area where they want to be, and it's impossible, let's be real, on a minimum wage job to go find something, probably if you live in a big city, I mean, I think you could have that stern conversation and then say, 
Right. Or we could keep them in their bedroom where at least it makes financial sense. So listen, I guess I'm, I say I'm sensitive about it because one, I dropped out of college and crashed with my parents for a little bit. I always had a plan. So there was no Dorito eating in the basement at all. They never would have gone for that. Uh, eventually I would go back to school. And then number two, I moved back in to that same apartment when I started working at NBC News because rents were so high and I needed to kind of figure it out. Let me tell you something. Crashing with your parents in a small apartment when you're single and fun-loving is no joy at all. But, you know, I did that for a few months, probably longer than they wanted me to, because it was the only way that I could think of where I could save money to do rent, security, you know, first and last month kind of thing. It was just it just financially impossible. So all those conversations, I think, are well-intentioned, but the math sometimes just doesn't work out. Well, and I'm not talking about kids who don't have jobs. Right. Some of the kids who moved home moved home because they were lonely, moved home because their social networks all fled the city and they were looking to be with parents. But we're in a really strong job market right now. And sometimes it's nice to be home. Sometimes it's nice to have mom do your laundry and my kids seem to love it. Yes, (laughs) exactly. And so I think the question then becomes what we're trying to foster is independent adults. We don't want a failure to launch. We want them launching successfully, feeling good about it. I agree. I've helped both my kids as they've struck out on their own in expensive cities on both coasts happily because they're working, but they can't do it. Just like my parents helped me when I moved to Brooklyn and my rent was only $400 a month. And I still... Back in the day. Back in the day. day. I still... I know people are thinking $400 a month. (laughs) So that was 1930. (laughs) But but Jean, do you mind me asking? Like when you decided to help them out, did you lay ground rules for like, hey, here's what we're going to allow? Or was it just open checkbook? No, 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 no. It's it is a it is a finite amount and as their salaries have grown, we've started to pull back on the support that we're giving them. And and that that is just a calculation that's gonna continue to happen. I'm curious the conversations you have with parents because Sometimes it's not just about, hey, I'm spending X number of dollars on more gallons of milk because the kids are home. It's I worry about coddling someone. One reason I will tell you that I think I've been successful, I didn't want to live at home. My bedroom was fine, but it was absolutely not where I wanted to be. My kids have great bedrooms in a great city, and they would be very comfortable and happy just hanging out in there. And I, I do worry. And I wonder if your clients come to you and say, how do I support them, help them, but make sure I'm not diminishing their ability to be independent because it's actually pretty nice at home. You want to support them, but you don't want to make it too comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. To where they end up extending that stay three, four, five years or much longer than, than Do what you, you charge expect. them rent? Yes. I think it's certainly something you have to consider. Quite frankly, I, I do think you should charge them rent. And it doesn't have to be very much. But it makes them responsible for having to recognize, hey, there is some obligation here, but also doesn't make them coming back to the, I don't want to make them too comfortable. My next door neighbor's parents charged her rent and they put all of that money into an account that they gave her when she moved out of the house to help her get started. Oh, that's so sweet. My mom held on to the money that she charged me for rent. She's like, you have a job, you can pay rent and you're on the Upper West Side living for virtually nothing, I think you're going to be okay. And meanwhile, save money so that you can get an apartment. And again, I think because they didn't make it comfortable, I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I, I think that is the, the dilemma. If you've been successful, how do you make sure that you're not 
creating a very comfortable environment for kids that you're trying to send out onto the world on their own. Yeah, I think from a planner standpoint, my biggest thing is just make sure that the parents aren't risking their own resources to support the the child. And if we can make sure that's taken care of, then we can start to build into some of these other items. And telegraph your intentions, right? You bet. I mean, clearly this is one of those conversations you have all the time, right? That's it. I mean, it's having a conversation. Sometimes you just have to bring in a third party to have some of these more difficult conversations with kids. We are always glad to sit down on your couch. Brian, (laughs) thank you so much. How do you know when to break up with your wealth advisor? Ask yourself, am I getting the attention I deserve? At Edelman Financial Engines, we don't believe you should settle when it comes to your wealth. That's why we model more than 38,000 securities, so we can better stress test your portfolio through thousands of scenarios. Stop settling. Call 888-912-0373 or visit efewealthplanners.com to see what you might be missing with a complimentary financial plan. I'm Jean Chatsky here with Soledad O'Brien. Joining us now to talk about downsizing your home, we have Rose Nyang from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Rose. Hey, Jean. Thank you for having me. Of course. So during our show today, we've been really tuning into those life events that happen as our kids transition into being adults from paying for college to what do you do when your adult kids suddenly return to the nest. Um, For this segment, we want to dig into something that many parents consider when their kids have flown the coop for good, which is downsizing the home. Since mid-20, 2020 about the real estate market has become what Yahoo Finance called the mother of all sellers market. We've had a perfect storm of heavy competition for homes, rising prices, and quick turnover. It's no wonder that 69% of home buyers are convinced it's a good time to sell their homes and cash in. Problem is, Soledad, where will they go? That is the dilemma. I mean, I know that if you're a boomer, your kids have left the home. Now you've got a couple of extra bedrooms. I just think the challenge might be where are you going to move to? I don't think you can sell your home and then take that money and buy in that same neighborhood, even something smaller. Everything is just insanely overpriced. So what kind of advice are you giving your clients who are coming to you saying, hey, maybe it's time for me to get out of my home? Yeah. So from a financial perspective, just selling your home that may be a little bit more expensive and buying into a a cheaper home can have a huge boosting effect for your nest egg and sometimes can even allow you to reach your goal sooner, right? But mm-hmm. as we were just discussing, it's not necessarily true that you'll buy a, a cheaper home when you sell your, your bigger home. In that case, then the net gain there is maybe less utility bills, right? A cheaper amount, so reducing your your overall monthly expenses. Or just less stairs, right? Mm-hmm. Because you don't or can't walk up and down anymore, right? Less maintenance on your lawn. So this is preparing you for that later life where you may not be able to do all that maintenance at your bigger home and will then have to hire somebody to do that, right? So there is some net gain when it comes to expenses, but also it's not just a financial decision, right? What I see while talking to my clients is it's an emotional decision as well. So when you downsize or right size, as many call it, right, go from a four bedroom, five bedroom house because you had all the kids at home to maybe a two bedroom and a loft, that also means getting rid of a lot of your stuff. 
So having a realistic conversation around how you are going to downsize, what are going to be the costs associated with moving, including all of that in the plan, having a plan for that windfall that you may get because you're getting a cheaper house, having that conversation with your financial planner is extremely important. On the flip side, we know that there are a lot of people who just don't want to move. They want to age in place. That's what it's called. And and they like where they live. They've been there a long time. That's where their friends are. They like their doctors. They just, they're used to it and they may want the extra space um, when the grandkids come to visit. So when we think about downsizing, there are some potential downsides as well, right, Rose? Absolutely. Like I said, this just goes beyond just a financial decision, right? You do not want to move for the sake of moving just to be unhappy in your later years. So then if we are talking about things like living in that bigger home to accommodate the grandkids, we have to make sure that within your financial plan, we are including the added cost of maintaining that older home. We have to make sure we are including the added cost of maintenance when you are no longer able to get on a ladder and clean the gutters, for example, the cost of having somebody come in. So having those real-life conversations with your financial planner just sets you up for success, whether you are right-sizing or staying put. My parents, frankly, driving was kind of terrifying at age 75. And I think they found a lot of freedom in living in New York City. They could take the bus. They could take the subway. And I think it gave them the freedom that they were starting to lose when they were stuck in the suburbs. And they just started to enjoy life a lot more when they could go to shows and go to museums and do everything with public transportation, getting rid of their car was a huge savings on a lot of fronts as well. So this just highlights that it's never a cookie cutter decision for everybody, right? So weighing what you're going to gain against what you're going to lose is a big one. For some clients, even though, Jean, as you've mentioned, the community that they love is around them. Selling their bigger home, downsizing into a smaller one, will simply allow them to retire, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you gain versus what do you lose, whether you are saying put and or leaving wherever it is that you have raised your family? It is important to sit with somebody that could run those numbers. I'm curious, though. Should you take a mortgage out if you are past retirement age? I mean, it seems to me that that would be a red flag, like, don't do it, but... I know a lot of people who think it's a good strategy when they downsize out of their home, they move into something else that they actually get a mortgage. I vote no. I I vote no if you're close to or in retirement and you can afford to not have a mortgage at the point in your life when your income is likely to start to contract. I just think from an emotional perspective and from a perspective of wanting to reduce the stress in your life, that's one expense that it's nice to be able to retire when you do. But I also know financial advisors sometimes look at this differently. Yeah, absolutely. I see your point. However, we do believe in having that longer, bigger mortgage and even in retirement because this does allow you more flexibility. Getting that money out of that asset can allow somebody to retire. Being that the home is the used asset, you'll always be living in it. There's always going to be some expenses associated with it. And you couldn't get the money out of the walls if you were tight and something bad happens, right? If you were tight in your budgeting, if you were tight in the assets that you have, and whether it was voluntary or involuntary, you are forced to retire. 
then using a mortgage to have that flexibility in cash does make a lot of sense. Rose, can we talk about the tax implications? Because we know with home prices going crazy right now, a lot of people are sitting on big capital gains in their homes. How are you advising people to deal with that? you've mentioned earlier, it is a seller's market, right? So if you are selling uh, at a big price, you have to be aware of some IRS rules about exclusions, right? So some of the profits that you've made by living in that house for 20 years, and now it's worth a gazillion dollars. If you are a couple, you're able to exclude up to a half of million dollars of gains, so $500,000 of gains, and $250,000 for singles. If those proceeds from the sale are substantially more than these numbers that I've just mentioned, uh, you may be forced to have a tax bill. Those, of course, can be offset by strategies like tax loss harvesting, uh, selling some stocks or mutual funds uh, to harvest some of those losses against the gains that you had on your house. Are you finding any of your clients are not aging in place and are not downsizing, but are actually upsizing? And I ask this because my <laughs> I, I don't laugh. I mean, no, I, I, you're, you're asking it's, because you've done this. I am. And I'm wondering the economy me. of me. It's the economy, the me economy of me. But, you know, my husband and I had lots of sort of intense conversations. Conversations and my failing was I want my kids and their friends and eventually grandchildren. My daughters and sons would kill me if they could hear me say this. But like I see in the, the short long term, more people coming in actually. And we're not at that stage of like, hey, now dad and I want to be in a much smaller place and we'll go to somebody else. I'm curious if other people are expanding before they contract. Yeah, we've seen some who are expanding before they contract, right? Not just me. This is our favorite word, right? It depends on your situation, right? So clients who may be moving to the beach, seeing that their, you know, family members may want to come by more often, maybe getting a bigger house than somebody who maybe is staying in town closer to children, So they don't necessarily need all that room because the grandkids are driving distance away. Either way, have a sit down with somebody you trust with a financial planner to see whether it is decreasing in expenses or increasing in expenses like Soledad is going to impact you being able to accomplish your long-term goals. You know, it comes down to, as you were saying, Rose, it's personal. It It is really, really personal. And I know when we looked at... Every single one of our moves, we actually sat down with our financial advisor beforehand and just ran the numbers on how this was likely to shake out. It makes sense for your life and your finances. Absolutely. And if you do not have a financial planner, you can always reach one by calling 833-PLAN-EFE or visiting planefe.com. That is our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you missed last week's show, you can download the podcast um, by going to planefe.com and visiting the Everyday Wealth page. We want to thank Brian Leslie and Rose Niang from Edelman Financial Engines for joining us. And to the rest of you, thanks for listening. Have a great week. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.